Am I on? Okay, all right. Well, praise God. It's an bl- honor and a blessing for me to be here again this morning. And I must have done something right last time because you guys asked me back, stay in here, praise the Lord. That's great. Uh, you know, I always look for confirmation when I come. And I did that the last time because I was very, uh, I just feel this great burden and sometimes uncertainty about uh, the, meth- the ways that the Lord is speaking to me. And last time he was greatly impressing upon me uh, the need to follow the, uh, if you will, the liturgy of the season and talk about the kingdom of God. So uh, this morning he impressed that upon me, actually the whole month now, he impressed that upon me again. And uh, he kept saying, talk about Lent, talk about this season that we're in right now, the season of Lent. And so I prepared a couple of different ways that I could go. What I heard in the praise and worship this morning confirmed the direction that I should take this morning. As far as the uh, basic topic of Lent goes, I got my confirmation as soon as I walked past the sign. That says it all. It says basically uh, Lent is our, what was the sign? Our, our training. Yeah, spring training. And that that pretty much says it all. That's what Lent is all about. It's about preparing our hearts for this event which we are about to uh, undertake and celebrate, the resurrection of our Lord. As we prepare ourselves for Resurrection Day, I thought it was important for me to understand a little more about Lent. I actually went on a a Lenten retreat to try to uh, grasp a little more of what this is about. And I understood in that, that the meaning of Lent, it isn't about giving up candy. Okay, kids will probably cheer about that, but it's about repentance. It's about specifically, it's about conversion. It's about changing our lives in ways that lead us to God through Christ. And our job as believers is two things. It's number one, to conform our own personal lives to Christ as we walk on this journey towards heaven. The destination is sure. Our salvation has been won for us. But the path that we take is sometimes two steps forward and one step back. And so each of us is called in our own unique way to pursue the path that has been laid out for us from the beginning of time for us to arrive in the kingdom of God. That's number one. Number two, and the Bible is very clear about this, it goes all the way back to the calling of the nation of Israel and to the ministry of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Our job as believers is to bring other people into this saving knowledge as well, to invite other people in. And it's become more and more difficult in our uh, modern or our postmodern American society as we see in many ways evil is raised up as good and good is beaten down as being evil or somehow disordered. And and so it's important for us to interact with our society in ways that gently, calmly, but steadfastly lead people to Christ. If we have to do that through their intellects, that's wonderful. That's a that's a sure plan of attack. If we if we need to do that through their heart and through their emotions, we have a savior that empowers us 
to do just that. So with every individual we approach, we need to take a unique uh, uh, approach to bringing them into this saving knowledge. And so I would like to talk about conversion. And I thought about six different types of conversions. I, in many cases, I thought of individuals I know who experienced these six types of conversion. The first one I'm thinking of, and first I'd like to talk a little bit, little bit about our society. Uh, some people say that this, the situation we're in right now in America is beyond hope and that uh, we are in a position where the, uh, uh, all we're doing at this point is treading water, waiting for Jesus to return and redeem this world. I believe when Jesus returns, you know, when he says, uh, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? I believe what he's saying is not, will I find pockets of believers holed up in bunkers around the world? I believe what he's saying is, will I find believers doing the works that I did? And even more, because the Holy Spirit has been given to them. Will I find people comforting the sick? Will I pe find people uh, affecting healing in people's lives, praying for people, evangelizing people, introducing people to Christ, standing up for moral good, and yet having compassion even for the worst of sinners? Will I find that on earth, people doing this work in my name? I think that's the faith that Jesus is looking for when he returns. And I don't know if he's coming back as a result of our most recent step back or not, but I'd like to encourage you not to look at life that way. That's not the way we're called. We're called to press on. Only God knows when he is sending the Son back to redeem us all. And so let's talk about these conversions. The first people that I know, the first uh, group that I know that has experienced a conversion, experiences one that I like to call a cosmic conversion. These are people that have moved from the, oh, maybe the 10 or 12 percent of Americans who are absolute confirmed atheists and believe in there is no God, there is no power. We are merely the product of an accident of an eternal universe. To, they, are, they, at some point in their lives, through reason, through science, through philosophy, we are able to move these people if we have a relationship with them, to a point where they are able to acknowledge intelligence in our world. Sure, and I mean, scientists are by the droves. They are literally discovering this. The more they dig into scientific uh, situations and propositions, they are finding out things that we always knew. There is an intelligence behind the beginnings, the origin of this universe. There is an order. There is a, uh, statistically, it is impossible for this to exist without some form of intelligence resulting in this. And we can take people when they have achieved this intelligence and this uh, understanding of an intelligence in the universe, and we can introduce them to the moral law. We can introduce them to the fact that intelligence itself, because it was involved in our own creation, in our own appearance on this planet, has built into itself a right and a wrong. I mean, the defense of marriage, the, uh, the affirmation of life, these are things that can be seen in our world and were put there 
by this intelligence. And in doing so, we tend sometimes to move people to another step or another conversion. And these are by no means sequential. But I've met people that have this intelligence. Uh, one example of the uh, cosmic intelligence would be Albert Einstein. He talked about God, but to him, as I read uh, his works, God meant whatever intelligence is out there that, that did all of this, that created this beauty and created this order. The next step is what I, you might call them a theist, okay? It, people who believe that this intelligent force is a person. So we look at people like Benjamin Franklin, and we look at people like uh, John Adams. We see people that recognize there is a God. There is actually a person that did all of this. Not just a force, not just some cosmic intelligence, but a real, genuine person that did all of this. And when we meet people who have this conviction, we are able to uh, lead them to the notion that if a person like this exists, if there is a person behind all of this great intelligence and all of this great creation, then that person undoubtedly, because of the beauty that he has created, wants to know us. He wants to get to know us. How can I, a mere human being, even ever hope to know this great, vast, omnipotent, intelligent being, this person that, that I call God? How can I ever hope to know him? Of course, here's an opportunity for us to talk to these people about how we know God. How do we know God? We know because we know Christ. We know exactly the person that he sent, the human that he sent, that is also divine into this world. By knowing him, we know the Father. We know him by his word, which has inspired people to share and to write down and to preserve for us. And so these are the ways that we can talk to people who have experienced this second type of conversion. A third type of conversion is one that I like to call uh, a, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, I'll say a Christian conversion. It is the person who, through his own intelligence or through her own uh, decision, has made up his mind, yes, I can know this God through this son of his named Jesus Christ. Okay, I believe, I believe Jesus came into the world to save man from his sins. I, I will pray the sinner's prayer with you, and I will make this uh, confession of my own sins for the remission of them so that I can spend eternity with him. And I know a number of people that fall into this category. They make this uh, intellectual ascent, and sometimes it, it gets them. Sometimes it digs into their heart, and you see that it's a true conversion. Sadly enough, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we see lots of people, I know a lot of them, that say, hey, I did that. I did that when I was five. I did that when I was 15. I made that decision. Yeah, that's all done with. Now, don't bother me with this Jesus stuff anymore. I don't want to have anything to do with that because I already took care of that. That's behind me. I'm, you know, I'm doing my thing now. And so it's more of an intellectual decision than it is a, a heartfelt, life-changing conversion. So that's a type of conversion. We meet lots of people like this. 
the best way to move them out of that realm and into relationship with Christ is to talk about the things that Jesus did, good, wonderful things. You know, I was stuck in that realm for a long time where I didn't want to make the next move. The next move, at least uh, in my way of thinking, is to an uh, ecclesial conversion. This is a conversion to a community, all right? Christ Community Church. Here I am. You don't need this to be saved, but boy, if you don't have anything, you better start questioning your decision. You better start thinking twice. Did I really make a decision? Nothing's changed in my life. God promised he would change me, and he didn't. Maybe I need to go to him on my knees in prayer and ask for uh, him to save me, even again if I need to, whatever it takes, because I want to see some change affected in my life to assure me of the salvation that these people I go to church with seem to be so sure of, and I don't have that assurance necessarily. And I've encountered people that have experienced this uh, next conversion, if you will, to society. And I'm sure we all have, without necessarily a, a concept of Jesus or without knowing who Jesus was. I'm not saying this is the way to be saved. What I'm saying is this is part of the whole picture. If we're saved by the grace of God, we have a passion within us to serve others. Why? Because Jesus has that passion. And I mean, you can't read the gospel without seeing that. You can't read the Sermon on the Mount without that coming through so clear. This was on Jesus' mind. This is what he wanted. I'll tell you, I'll give you an example in my own personal life of a situation where I met a guy who was convinced that the way to get to heaven was by serving others. Okay, this was his he was absolutely convinced of this. And we had a lot of talks back and forth. I'm saying, no, it's by the grace of God. It's not by our works. And he's saying, no, you got to work. You got to do these works. If you don't do these works, you're not saved. And we're going back and forth and we're talking over each other. We're not talking to each other. We're talking at each other. He did something to me that just, it struck me. It, it changed me as a person. Here's a guy who I don't know if he's born again or not. I have no idea. But he did something that changed me. And this is a good example. If you put up the uh, Bible verse, he quoted this to me. He said, when the Son of Man comes, and this is from Matthew, comes in his glory, Jesus is speaking, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of these, the least of my brothers and sisters, you did for me. The next verse. Okay, so he says, see, 
You get that? Do you understand that? If you do that for others, you're doing it for Christ. And you're on his right side. Next section, and I'm sure I'm telling you of a verse, a section of the Bible you've read many times. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of these, the least of mine, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I could preach a whole message on that, but you've already heard a lot of messages on that. There are whole theologies built on that section of Scripture, from one extreme to the other. But this guy did something. He made it personal to me. He said, Mark, the fact is, the poor need you. They need you. They need you to feed them. They need you to clothe them. They need you to give them shelter. Mark, the poor need you. And you need them to keep you from going to hell. <laughs> Whoa, it almost knocked me over. I couldn't believe that. I'd never heard it put quite that way before. And of course, all of my, all my biblical and theological and all alarms were going off by that statement. But I backed off and I thought about it and I said, Okay, I don't believe that this is the reason why I'm saved. But I do believe the passage before that where Jesus talks about the talents or the one right before that where he talks about the fig tree. I do believe salvation is evidenced by our fruit and by our works. So whether I think that if you're saved, you will produce good fruit, or if you're saved and you don't produce good fruit, that's evidence you were never saved, or if you uh, think you're saved and nothing ever changes in your life, that means you never were saved, or if you're saved and you do all kinds of terrible things, that means you've lost your salvation. I don't even want to go there. I don't even want to think about it. I got my head on straight when it comes to being born again, okay? But he made a point. He made a good point. It's like, you need the poor, whether you realize it or not, you need the poor. From that time on, and I may have said something to Marty, actually, about this, I took some money and I stuck it in my car, and every time I come to a bum on the freeway, I give him a $10 bill, and I thank him. I thank him. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to say thanks to you. you know? No, thank you. And I try to engage him unless they're honking horns behind me in some kind of conversation, at least to affirm him as a person, as a child of God, as an individual. That changed my life. That was my own ecclesial conversion, conversion to community. And I applaud the men and women in this church that I see and that I know do just that. They help out at food shelters. They, they serve. Uh, they give their finances and, and they help wherever they can in their community to their neighbors as best they can. These are works of mercy. These are actions that Jesus doesn't disdain. 
He loves this stuff. You are doing His work. When He comes to find faith on the earth, this is what He's looking for. He's looking for people that are doing the works that He did and even greater works because we have the Holy Spirit, which is a wonderful, great thing. We can appeal to these people. Always open up the gospel and show them this kind of thing. They want to know this guy that said this. They want to meet this person that said this thing. Here's our opportunity to introduce them to Jesus Christ if they don't already know him. The next is the moral conversion. And it's interesting that normally this is placed after the ecclesial conversion. Because the way I was brought up, you this, here's the law, you do this, okay? Here's the commandments, you obey these things. You do this, you don't do that. And most of the emphasis was on, you don't do that. You hear what I'm saying, yeah. So there's a moral conviction that comes to people, whether they know Christ or not that says, this is what I don't do because it's wrong to do this. I don't even understand why it's wrong, but I don't do this because it's wrong. Then there are people who are born-again Christians who would never entertain sin or see as they, to the best of their ability. They are trying not to sin. They're not trying to sin to get saved. They're trying to sin because probably a good percentage of what Jesus speaks about in the gospel has to do with not sinning. I want to not sin. I want to be like Christ. This leads us to the sixth conversion. And I hate this word, but it seems to be the one that people use over and over again, the holistic conversion. You look at the whole big picture. There is a God. He created the universe. He is intelligent. He is beyond our understanding. The only way we can know him is through Jesus Christ. The only way we can serve him is by serving one another. His only command is to love God and love one another. That's the only thing he ever taught us to do. The, this God, through his prophets and through his son, has told us to obey the law of Moses. He hasn't told us, go out and sin like crazy. I'm sorry, he doesn't say that. He says, pay attention to this, to the best of the ability that you have because of my spirit that dwells within you. Obey this law. Obey this law. Obey the commandments. What must I do to be saved? What does Jesus say? Except me as your personal savior? He doesn't say that to this young man. What does he say? He says, you have the law. Obey the law. Go do that. That's what he says. That doesn't mean that that's how we get saved. But what Jesus is saying is, you want to get on the path to salvation? Start by doing what God the Father tells you to do. And then, when you realize you can't do it, okay, maybe you'll go get some help in that regard. And so, we as Christians avoid sin at every turn because we don't want to offend the God who saved us, the person who dwells in our hearts in the Holy Spirit. And we are resolved to live our lives for Christ. And living my life for Christ is doing the things that Jesus did, doing the works that he did, being able to interact with people right wherever they are in life and lead them gently and lovingly closer to Christ, who will take them to the Father. That is so important. And I only have one more thing. I'm going to cut this short because we had a great time of sharing, and uh, I don't want to keep you guys too late here, but I want to talk about this. Uh, I was thinking, okay, so we're in this situation in America where we encounter all these different people. Is it too late? Is, it, is this like the last big thing before Jesus comes again? And I started, I know a little bit about history, but 
I think we can be of good cheer. It's not too late, okay? This is not the first time in history that uh, we have encountered these kinds of problems. And I just thought I'd point out a few things. Uh, you may have heard the expression, it was the Irish who saved Western civilization. Well, it was, actually. The more I dug into that, what I found was good old St. Patrick with his band of merry men went to Ireland, a pagan nation, converted them to Jesus Christ. Their lives changed. And a hundred years later, the Irish are sending missionaries all over Europe, which had fallen into decay and debauchery and uh, uh, symbolism and uh, uh, wrote prayers and things like this and had lost their heart for God and in their personal lives had turned to sin. And it was the Irish missionaries who brought them back to Christ. And it didn't take long. It only took about 30 or 40 years before Europe began to change back to Christ. It didn't take long for people like St. Jerome or St. Augustine, great 4th and 5th century saints, who took people after the fall of Rome and the absolute decay and chaos that was going on in civilization to translate the Bible into the common language of Latin at that time and to develop a theology and a philosophy that would change people's hearts. It didn't take long. It didn't take that many years to change them. It didn't take long for the great reformers to change the world. It really didn't. When you look at the fact that here's Martin Luther in, in 1517, 500 years ago this year, posting his 95 theses on the, on the wall at Wittenberg. Go forward in time 30 years or so. And what you find is in the Council of Trent, this blew me away. Canon one, the most important thing in the Council of Trent in 1547, 30 years later, writes, if anyone says that man can be justified by God, by his own works, whether done in his own natural powers or through the teaching of the law, without divine grace through faith in Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. That sure doesn't sound like the Catholics to me, does it? Yet there it is in their own council. There it is in their own catechism. I can evangelize Catholics by their own catechism. I can hit them with this because this is what happened as a result of the church being reformed through some faithful people. Not that these people were perfect by any means, but they were faithful, just like us. We're not perfect, but we're faithful. We talked a little bit this morning about the persecution in Rome in 64 AD. Persecution under Nero. Thank you for bringing that because it just all of a sudden it hit me. 64 AD. Yeah, that's about 30 years after Jesus was crucified. Jesus is crucified. And then in 33 or 34 AD, out go the disciples to evangelize the world. We know the two of them ended up in Rome, Peter and Paul, because Peter writes about being in Babylon, which is Rome, and Paul actually writes a whole book to the Romans while he's there in chains. So we know those two guys, along with a lot of other people, ended up in Rome. In 64 AD, a persecution took place. Nero blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians, okay? Tens of thousands of Christians were, were burned, were murdered. They were either executed, thrown to the lion, crucified, burned at the stake. They, were, they said the bodies of Christians were used throughout the city of Rome to, to light up the circus for, for Nero as he burned them. And so these people were destroyed. 
tens of thousands of Christians were killed. There are people that say, oh, that has to be hyperbole. That can't be true. You couldn't, there's no way you could take a pagan city like Rome and in 30 short years turn tens of thousands of people in a city of maybe only 120,000, turn tens of thousands of them to Christ? Oh, yeah, you could. Yes, you could. It was done then. It was, we have so many examples in history of that being done. You know, this mess may have, some people say it started in the 60s. I happen to think it started before that. But the fact of the matter is, we almost changed the world when I was a young man back in the 70s. There was this, there was a charismatic renewal. People started to come to Christ. People from all religions started to drop their differences and say, we got to start working for Christ. He wants us to be one in this effort, just like he says in Galatians. He wants us to be one. And so they started to work in that direction. Guess what? Christianity got really popular all of a sudden in the 80s. I mean, people were preaching. I went to a charismatic conference where Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States, spoke to us. That's how much Christianity had invaded and permeated our society. That was only a few years. Unfortunately, there were too many unscrupulous televangelists. There were too many... Uh, stingy, uh, uh, sinful uh, uh, pastors. There were too many evil, uh, uh, sinful priests and, and clergy who gave in to their lusts, and they destroyed. They destroyed all credibility. The Holy Spirit was grieved. He retreated, and he waited. Okay, you young folks, you got another generation coming here. This is your chance. This is your chance to take the gospel and move it forward. It might take 30 years, and I might not be here 30, I probably won't be here 30 years from now to see it happen, but you have to change the world. You have to do it. You have to move forward with the gospel of Christ, and you do it not by starting great movements, you do it one person at a time. Make friends. Go outside of these four walls and make friends. Get to know them. Get them to know you. Find out where they're coming from. Find out what they believe. And gently and purposely, being as sly as a, as a serpent, lead them forward to the cross. Lead them to Christ. That's our mission. That's what we're called to do. What else is there but to evangelize? That's what it's all about. Heavenly Father, I, just, I thank you for Christ's community church. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir here. I know I am. I'm probably preaching to myself more than anything else. But Lord, I thank you for these people who truly understand the need to serve you in their community as they serve one another, in their own personal lives as they live upright, moral, and upstanding principles, as they live them out beyond reproach and avoiding scandal in everything that they do. And as they do your work of evangelization in order to change the world, to change their world in Delroy, Ohio, to change their world one soul at a time. Lord, for those who are saved, I pray that you would empower them with your Holy Spirit. Give them all of the tools, the resources, and the knowledge to lead others to you. Your will is that everyone would receive you as Savior and Lord. Let your will be done 
in these, your people, as we fall at your feet, worship you, and ask you, beg you, to give us your Holy Spirit in ways that will change our lives and the lives of everyone we encounter. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I guess that's it. Okay, you're dismissed. Thank you. Go out there and change that world. <laughs>